About 200 years ago, probably on a dark and stormy night, Mary Shelley gave the world Frankenstein, and it has lived on in our nightmares ever since. About the same time, her husband, an intermittent and tortured poet named Percy, gave us writer's block. He described creativity as a fading coal. And in one of his most dangerous writings, he wrote, And the most glorious poetry that has ever been communicated to the world is probably a feeble shadow of the original conceptions of the poet. He set the stage for what would soon come after, the epidemic of writer's block. Konnichiwa. It's Nick in Fukuoka, Japan, and this is a special archived episode of Akimbo. The thing is, there's no such thing as writer's block. Joan Akasella has a great piece on this in The New Yorker, and in it, she describes the evolution of writer's block. It turns out, Percy's poem, his writing about getting stuck, spread. It spread to the poets, and then it spread to the novelists. It spread to the psychoanalysts, and then it spread to the people writing screenplays. And then, and then, and then. So any copywriter, video editor, social media guru, public speaker, who's worth his or her salt, has writer's block. Because that juicy work, the work we seek to do, the work where no one's telling us how to do it because it's never been done before, that work with the fancy snacks and the big prizes, where there are clients and audiences and partners waiting for us to spin something out of whole cloth, that work, well, we get blocked. We get stuck. We get this malady that we've given a name to, writer's block. And there's no such thing. Plumbers don't get plumber's block. The plumber doesn't show up at your house when you have a dripping faucet and say, oh, I don't know. I'm really stuck. I'm blocked. I'm not sure. I Do you have any whiskey? No. There's no such thing as plumber's block. There's no ditch digger's block. There's no lift driver block. Why do writers, do creatives, get this magic special exception? Well, I want to argue that we don't deserve it that it's not real, that yes, we get stuck, we feel stuck. But the thought that writer's block is something that we actually can't escape from, that it's like having a cold or a wart or cancer, I'm not buying it. I think instead what we are is confused. We're confused because what we're really saying is, I don't have any ideas that are perfectly formed. I don't have something that I'm sure is going to work. As we get better at our craft, as our reputation increases, it gets more and more difficult to overcome this problem. Because when you're coming out of left field, when you're a longshoreman in San Francisco in the 1930s or 40s, and no one's expecting very much of you, well, then you can just write. And Eric Hoffer just wrote. But once your reputation grows, once it grows, then all of a sudden, we start censoring ourselves. 
we start wanting the streak to continue. We start maximizing in our head the problem of doing it poorly and minimizing the ability to do it well. So your problem isn't that you don't have enough good ideas. Your problem might be that you don't have enough bad ideas. Years ago, I was fortunate enough to work with the great Isaac Asimov. Isaac was one of the most important science fiction writers of his generation. He pioneered the writings about robots. He figured out how to write space operas. In fact, he wrote 400 books in his career. Wrote and published 400 books back when there was no Kindle and publishing yourself wasn't particularly easy. 400 books. How'd he do it? Isaac, I said, how'd you do it? He said, well, it's pretty simple. I have this manual typewriter, and every morning I get up at 6.30, and I sit at the typewriter, and then I type, and I type until noon. I just type. I keep typing. It doesn't matter if I type good stuff. It doesn't matter if I type bad stuff. I keep typing. And what his subconscious would say to him is, well, as long as we've got to type, we might as well type something worth reading. And this idea that we are going to be able to create more and more bad work on our way to good work is one way to unlock the myth, to get past the stuckness and realize we don't have a problem with writing, just as we don't have a problem with talking. What we really have a problem with is being perfect. Another way to approach it is the Harlan Ellison method. I sell my soul, but at the highest rates. The highest rates. I don't take a piss without getting paid for it. Harlan decided that he was a writer for hire. And if someone was going to pay him, he was going to do the writing. It wasn't about the muse. It wasn't about what inspiration hit him. It was his job. He's a plumber. Pay the writer, the writer will write for you. David Mamet has a different approach. David Mamet, who created some of the most vivid and memorable plays of our lifetime, has had a whole bunch of clunkers in a row. But he keeps writing, which is exactly, in fact, the only way to write a great play, to keep writing, to show up and put the work on the table. I'm here from downtown. I'm here from Mitch and Murray. And I'm here on a mission of mercy. It's easy to believe that creativity is going to come at us like lightning. Miles Davis recorded Kind of Blue in 72 hours, one of the greatest jazz albums ever recorded, certainly one of the best-selling. Three days, done. We look at that and we say to ourselves, wow, I can't wait for something like that to hit me. Except, except Miles Davis made more than 40 record albums in his career. More than 40. And very few compared to Kind of Blue. How could they? That's okay. He did the work. He showed up, and he did the work. Stephen King, one of the greatest writers of our time, goes to writers' conferences. He's paying it forward. And at these conferences, up-and-coming authors raise their hand and they say, Stephen King, you are one of the greatest writers of all time. Please tell us, what kind of pencil 
do you use? As if knowing what kind of pencil Stephen King used would help. What we seek when we are afraid, when we are looking for the way out, is reassurance. We want the reassurance of someone telling us everything is going to be okay. The reassurance of knowing how Stephen King does his writing, how Isaac Asimov does his writing, how this screenwriter or that playwright comes up with their ideas. This is foolish, because reassurance is futile. There can never be enough reassurance. After you're done at the writer's conference, you need to go home and sit by yourself, and no one is standing there telling you everything is going to be okay. You cannot rely on reassurance because reassurance will let you down. Instead, we have to learn how to fly, to fly solo, to dig a ditch, to do the plumbing, to come up with the bad ideas on our way to having the insight to tell them apart from the good ideas. Steve Pressfield calls these emotions resistance. Resistance, his term, is the work of the amygdala that little almond-sized bit of brain near our brainstem. The amygdala doesn't speak English. The amygdala is in charge of fight or flight. The amygdala is what makes a wild animal a wild animal. And we still have one. It got us here. Millions of years later, it helped us. It helped us in the jungle. It helped us in the savanna. It helped us, yes, in the boardroom. But the amygdala backfires. It backfires because it has a lot of trouble telling the difference between a saber-toothed tiger and an editor. It backfires because when it sees danger, it freezes up, it gets our heart racing, and it's very, very clever. It's clever in the way it will come up with a thousand ways to avoid doing the thing it is afraid of. So the job of the creative Two parts. First, she has to expose herself to the world, to learn, to see, to understand. And second, she has to dance with the amygdala. The fear will not go away. The resistance never goes away. The more important the work is, the louder it gets. The harder you try to make it go away, the harder and more clever it gets in response. No, you cannot make it go away. There will never be regular days where you feel like Miles Davis recording Kind of Blue. Maybe Never's a little strong. There will rarely be days like that. Don't count on them. Instead, the work is doing it when you don't feel like it. Doing it when it's not easy. That waiting an entire lifetime to write that magic paragraph might be fun and easy in that moment. But that's not the work. The work of the professional is different. Roz and Ben Zander, in their beautiful book, The Art of Possibility, suggest a simple way for us to change our narrative. And the idea is to replace the word but with the word and. In the example Roz gives, I'm in Florida, I'm on vacation, but it's raining outside. The but ruins everything. You wanted it to be one thing, and it's something else. As Pema Chodron has pointed out, that's where suffering lies. When our conception of what's fair doesn't match what's happening. 
But as Roz points out, we can replace the word but with the word and. I'm in Florida on vacation, and it's raining outside. So, I can work on my cooking. I don't have to go to the beach. As soon as we embrace the and, we can get back to work. I have a deadline tomorrow. I have to write some copy, and I'm feeling blocked. So I will write down as many bad ideas as I can. That's fine, because now you're moving forward. You're sitting at the typewriter and typing, page after page after page. When I was in ninth grade, they opened a new high school in my town. So I had to start at a new school in 10th grade. And when they opened the new school, of course, they had a soccer team and a football team and a lacrosse team, but they didn't have a quiz bowl team. And in Buffalo, where I grew up, quiz bowl was a big deal every Sunday night on TV. We needed a quiz bowl team, and I wanted to be on it. So I went to all the trouble of starting the team, finding the advisor, building the little circuit board for the buzzers and everything else. And then we did auditions. And of course, at the audition, I came in 10th, didn't make the team but they let me be the coach. And I understood soon afterwards why I did so poorly in tryouts, because I was pretty good at trivia. I did poorly because I had a buzzer management problem. Here's the deal. If you want to win on Jeopardy, you can't wait until you're sure you know the answer. Because by the time you're sure you know the answer, someone else has already buzzed. The secret of buzzer management is not buzzing when you know the answer. It's buzzing when you think you might know the answer by the time they call on you. That second and a half, in between the time you buzz and the time the host calls your name, your brain is working overtime. Your brain dances with the amygdala, figures out it's better off putting the right idea into the world than it is hiding. You become more afraid of being blocked than you are of doing the work itself. So buzzer management is another example of a good habit. That what writer's block really is, is a series of bad habits and fear piled one atop another. It's fictional. We don't have writer's block. Maybe we feel it, but it's not who we are. We are not blocked. What we are is afraid. And that fear, that fear of watching our reputation be frittered away because the next thing we're going to do isn't as good as the last one, that fear of what people will say about us, it gets us into a swizzle. It gets us stuck. Nike, of course, would like you to just do it, which is easily interpreted as, what the hell? Spin it off get it over with, put it out there. That's not what they mean. The idea of shipping your work is not about just shipping it, whatever, what the hell. Instead, it's the idea of merely doing it. Doing it without commentary. Doing it without listening to the whining, the excuses, the complaining, all of the maneuvering the resistance is doing in the back of your head. Merely do it means take out your wrench, and adjust the pipe. Take out your shovel and dig the ditch. Merely do it. Sit at the typewriter and write. Four hours, five hours, and then get up. You're done. 
It's your job. We're professionals. And our profession is to create something that matters, to find a way to lead and connect. It is not as straightforward as factory work. It is not as reliable as factory work. But it's 500 times better. It's better because it engages us at a level of humanity that so many of us have wanted to get their hands on. Merely ship it. Merely put the idea into the world. Merely arrive with the best that you've got right now. It's probably not perfect. It's definitely not good enough. But we can make it better. You can make it better. But first we must begin. We cannot persuade ourselves that something has afflicted us. We have afflicted us. We have afflicted ourselves with a narrative, one of impotence, the end of the road, we're done, no more chances. It's not true. All the data shows us it's not true. We merely have to write. We merely have to create, have to be generous enough to show up with the best work we've got right now. Because once the amygdala, the resistance, realizes you're going to ship it anyway, it'll get its act together, and your work will get better. So no, please don't say to anybody, I have no good ideas. Begin by saying, I don't have enough bad ideas. Hey, Seth, it's Maria. Hey, Seth, my name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. And now, your questions from the previous episodes... There's a couple questions, too, that have come up again and again. Here's a representative for each one. My question for you is this. How might a large organization, like a public school district, scale up efforts to make the system fit its students? Yeah, this is a great question. And the idea is, how do we use the bureaucracy we've got now, the efficient, powerful bureaucracy, to make school what it needs to be, which is personalized and individualized education about leadership, about making change happen. Well, I think if we think about it a little differently, you'll see the problem. Let's say you ran a really efficient division of the army, the division of the army that shaves the heads of all the people on their way into boot camp, that on a good day, you can shorn 400 people, no problem. Well, that's super efficient. And I understand how you would organize a squadron of barbers to end up with 400 haircuts done in no time. However, if you're going to then take that approach and try to build a chain of beauty parlors and hair salons, you're going to fail. And the reason you're going to fail is not because you're bad, at shaving the heads of 20-year-olds, the reason you're going to fail is that's not what the public needs or wants from you. And so the wrong answer would be, here's how you take this squadron you've got that was good at the old job and turn them into people who are good at the new job. The right answer would be, what's the new job? Let's build something around that. 
So the challenge of adjusting the bureaucracy of school is there can be no effortless, easy, top-down solution to this problem, that the problem is going to be solved a different way. It's going to be solved by parents asking a simple question, what is school for? And if we can be clear with each other about what is school for, we will no longer tolerate wasting time and money doing things that school isn't for. And organically, with a lot of dislocation and pain and suffering and discomfort, but yes, organically, day by day, classroom by classroom, student by student, the school system will begin to change. But it will only begin to happen when we ask the question, what is school for? When you're in a creative entrepreneurial endeavor, making your best art, for those edge customers, how do you grapple with the fact that the capital, the sales from that smaller audience might not be enough to really keep you going, uh, to provide you with what you need to be making your next iteration of your art? Yeah, this is a poignant question and one that I hear the most about this issue of making our art for the smallest viable audience, about treating different people differently, about rejecting the square tomato, about not pandering to the middle of the market, trying to make our social network scores go up at all costs. Built in is a contradiction, which is, how can I have a hit, an industrialized hit, at scale, at the very same time I am catering to people who aren't in the center of the market? And the problem with the question is it sets you up to fail. Because what you do is you rationalize as you try to move to the middle. You say, well, I need to cut these corners. I need to average this out. Because if I don't, I won't be able to get big enough to pay the bills. But as you'll see from the people who make mediocre movies for average audiences and don't make a profit, as you'll see from the people who make mediocre music for the people in the middle and don't make a profit, and who run mediocre restaurants for people in the middle and don't make a profit, Going for the middle, for the brass ring, rarely works. In fact, the successes all start at the edges, always. They're for the weird people, the people who didn't show up in a demographic study or a focus group. It's by catering to them, to the obscure extremes, that we end up with something that becomes a surprise bestseller. The thing is that in order to do it, you have to be willing to cut your overhead to the bone. You have to lower your expectations. You have to go slowly, not get big fast, but get important soon. Because if you can become important to a few people, then, if you've planned it right, the cash flow will begin to support your move to serve more people. So what I'm asking us to do is to suspend disbelief just a little bit and get down to why we showed up to do this in the first place. Get down with a focus on who is it that we actually seek to serve. And instead of hiding behind mass, instead of hiding behind cash flow, let's embrace the fact that if we can't serve those people, we're better off not even trying. If you've got questions about this episode, I hope you'll check out akimbo.link and click the appropriate button. We'll listen to your question, and if we can, we'll include it in a future episode. See you next time.
it's not too late. Hey, it's Seth. About 16 years ago, I wrote my first post about climate change. And since then, every single metric has gotten worse. But it's not too late. What we need to do is shift it from a me problem to a we problem. And my new project is not my new project. It's our new project. More than 300 volunteers from 40 countries around the world have spent the last bunch of months putting together the Carbon Almanac. It's not coming out till June, but you, my loyal Akimbo listeners, I wanted you to see it and hear about it. First, check out thecarbonalmanac.org for all the details. Thank you for caring enough to make a difference.